Did you just say you couldn't arm your microphone because you were staring at pictures of Riot? Yes. This happens a lot, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is the Gem Jam, where we do an episode-by-episode recap of the 1980s cartoon Gem and the Holograms, because it is truly outrageous. And you guys... Episode 17, In Search of the Stolen Album, is today's episode, and our good friend Rick Merwin is back on writing duty. You may remember Rick Merwin from such episodes as The Rock Fashion Book. And every other 80s cartoon ever made. This is a man who is well-versed with shenanigans, which is great because that's all this episode is. So our episode opens up at the Starlight Recording Studio, which I can't remember if we've actually seen this set before or if we've just seen them like in a recording studio. They do know that this is them recording their first big album. So maybe this is a new thing. And before they only recorded really crappy singles in their house. Also, it's taken them this long to record an album. What have they released before this point? This is episode 17. They've at least had a tape circulating by episode three. And it has taken 14 more episodes for them to cut their first big album. Maybe big's a qualifier here? Is it their first actual album? Because I that seems kind of really weird. Or is big the qualifier? I mean, it could have just been like a series of singles. Or EPs. Isn't that terrible business practice? I have no idea how the music industry functions. I get the feeling Rick Merwin has no idea how the music industry functions either. But at least he knows that there are sound engineers. We start with uh, with the holograms recording a song that we're going to actually hear in its entirety a little later. They cut, Jem says, someone's a little flat after Aja keeps going on lead vocals. Has Aja just been singing the songs this whole time and everyone thought it was Jem? I would buy it. Jim's like, somebody's a little flat. I was just like, I'm awesome. It can't be me. And then Shayna, who apparently is trying to, like, follow up on her great line of, that's okay, we're wearing killer outfits, says, maybe you're just wearing the wrong shoes. No, my shoes aren't flat. They're shot, don't you think? We're just like, is this, is this Aja's sense of humor? Is this why we don't hear Aja talk that much? Because she's just nothing but dad jokes all the time. Meanwhile, in the sketchiest neighborhood in the world, the misfits wander into a dilapidated building where it turns out Eric lives, works, both. The great thing is that Spazaz is on her way into the building. She opens the door, it falls off the hinges, and a rat comes out and she screams. It's like they told the animators that this is a crappy neighborhood and they were like, how can we make this come across to children? This is incredible. This is this is what Eric calls a low rent building. This is a no rent building. Eric also tells the Misfits that Daddy Gaborbucks has, quote, banished them from Misfits music. Well, banished him from Misfits music. And Pizzazz is just like, oh, you just have to get back into his good graces. And I was like, that's Pizzazz being unusually altruistic. And then it turns out that Pizzazz has a copy of Music Biz Magazine. B-I-Z-Z Magazine. Pizzazz wants Eric to stop Gem and the Holograms from releasing their first big album. Pizzazz says that in order to get back in Daddy Good Warbucks Good Graces, they just have to make him money because, quote, that's all he understands. So stealing an album is going to make them money? Later on, we see the Misfits recording their own tracks on top of the Holograms background music. So I guess the implication is we will steal the album and then make it into our own album and make a ton of money. It's not the most convoluted plan that Pizzazz has come up with. It's true. Uh, no, the most convoluted plan Pizzazz comes up with is actually in this episode. 
Back to Starlight Records. The holograms come back to Jerrica's office. They relax for a minute. And then Jerrica's like, we have a lot of phone calls to make. We have this kind of cute montage, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense because apparently the holograms are their own like marketing team. And it's the middle of the night and they're making all these phone calls. Who are they calling? Is everyone they have to talk to overseas? Nobody's going to be in their offices unless they're in like Japan. So after they're all done making all these calls to vampires, apparently, Kimber like yawns and it's like, it's hard work being famous. Kimber has not been doing any work. At all. She's been napping on the couch. And then the next day they come back to the recording studio where we actually get our first music video, which is the song that they were working on earlier, which is there's a melody playing. There's a melody playing. Which starts with a hilarious leg twitch on Jem's part. It's like that nervous gesture you see teenage boys doing in high school where the knee bounces up and down at like hypersonic speed, only she's standing and it's like the animation is two frames long. This actually might be my favorite hologram song. It is a good song. Even if Rio's here for no reason. And Rio is surprisingly stiff. Like, while Jim is actually gorgeously, you know, animated like she normally is with the hair twisting and everything, Rio just kind of stands there and his arms are kind of held in the dancing posture and he doesn't really move. He and Jim are dancing and he dips her and, ooh, spines do not work that way. But the most notable thing about this video is that it ends with a mic stand pole dance. Yeah, she does this like, she swings around the microphone stand down to the floor and gives the camera this sultry glance. That's a thing they put in a children's cartoon. Yep. Meanwhile, at Eric's apartment in the middle of the night. He's sleeping on a couch. It looks like an office. He's just living in his office. And let's also talk about the fact that for most of this episode, Eric is just like completely disheveled. It's actually kind of pathetic. I almost feel bad for him. Zipper is doing his thing, you know, leaping from building to building. And then he shimmies his way into Eric's office via window. If you're in a crappy neighborhood, why does he have to come in through the window? Why would you even have that window open? Maybe there's just no glass in that window. <laughs> Zipper's apparently been summoned by Eric, and Eric tells him, like, the holograms are recording. And he tells him, quote, there just might be a bonus for you if the master tape disappears. And Zipper cackles at this, but a bonus? Does he pay Zipper a regular salary? That would explain where Zipper gets all his outfits. That would also explain why Zipper continually gets given jobs, despite the fact Zipper takes every job as murder them. Eric takes this information, he wakes up, he gets dressed, and he goes to uh, what we actually recognize as the Gabor Mansion, which is an exterior I don't think we've seen since, like, episode six. Matilda the Maid mistakes Eric for a vagrant. And I initially thought that Matilda the Maid was Mrs. Bailey, so I was like, Mrs. Bailey, what are you doing at the Gabor's, you traitor? No, I think Matilda, Matilda's apparently possesses servant, and I think Matilda might actually be evil Mrs. Bailey. I totally love her, though, because, I mean, she's like, we don't want any, and then possesses to let Eric in, and Matilda just, there's this close-up of Matilda just scowling at him. Eric tells the misfits who are all hanging out at Pizzazz's house that they should leave town for a few days because something bad is going to happen to the master tape. Roxy, who always has the best input at any situation, such as cool, now follows this up with, hey, rad. But yeah, they have to leave town because something, something plausible, deniability, something, something. Right, which is which is great timing because we then cut to the recording studio at night where Zipper nabs both the master tapes and all of the song sheets. Nobody keeps backups. There was only one master tape. There's not a backup. There's not nothing. And that's our commercial break. So, Memento Mori Gems album, I guess. Buy more dolls. They need it. The dolls come with cassettes. You can reassemble the master tape. But when we come back, the uh, the engineers are in the recording studio and we hear a Star Trek door noise. 
and Gemma and the holograms come in. And the engineers are like, God, ah, turns out everything's gone. It was a real pro job, which is like, that is not how I would ever describe Zipper's operation. What's really great is when they say that the master tape has been stolen, Aja says, oh no, but all the holograms' lips move. Tim, the audio engineer, says, I can't even tell how they got in. He got in through a window. He opened a window and, and he climbed in. The window wasn't even locked. You sucked, Tim. Gemma, of course, immediately suspects the misfits because this is just her life now. She suspects the misfits when they are and are not responsible, which is honestly probably good. It's a safer bet, really. The misfits are probably responsible. 85% of the time, they are probably responsible. Meanwhile, somewhere fancy that looks suspiciously like a club med. The misfits are hanging out by the pool, where Roxy proves herself uh, hydrophobic. She dives into the water and then climbs out, and there's no indication she was ever in the water. Roxy repels water. Bizaz has a great idea at this pool party. She says, let's make them trying to find the master tape a scavenger hunt. Roxy immediately chimes in with cryptic clues. Like the misfits are super pumped for this arts and crafts project. Let's be real. Stormer ended up doing all the work. That's true. Oh yeah, definitely. They got all the magazines to write those ransom notes. Stormer's the only one who actually ended up cutting out the letters and the other two started just reading the magazines. Well, except Roxy. Roxy looked at the pictures. It's not like Roxy could have even helped with cutting out these letters at all. Though Pizzazz probably dictated it in terms of, like, the poetry. So we do a couple of, like, quick cuts here. The holograms at Starlight Records are out of a lot of money if this album can't be found. And that's pretty much the summary of that situation, I guess. Then we cut to Flash Recording Studio, which I think is actually the same recording studio they used during the Kimber Stormer episode. So the engineer is like, okay, babies, why don't we start putting down the track? Pizzazz is like, we're not your babies. Immediately, like her first response is like, we're not your babies. And then just turns straight back around and it's like, no, let's actually record this. Which leads us into our second and final song of the episode, which is Misfits, There Ain't Nobody Better, which is actually, it is the exact same audio as there's a melody playing, but the Misfits have overlaid vocals on it. Which, considering how different the music behind the the misfits and the holograms is do they really think they're going to be able to successfully pass this off as theirs this is what really bothers me about it it's like holograms music is so different from misfits music misfits songs are better and it's not just because pizzazz's lyrics are like incredible though i will say that i do like how very different the lyrics are for each group the holograms are all you know just sort of vague romance it makes me think of you and something, something, we will kiss. The Misfits lyrics for this song are just entirely, I'm so awesome. For There's a Melody playing, the uh, the holograms are pretty much just kind of jamming in him. There ain't nobody better, Pizzazz just sort of harasses roadies. And then Eric comes in afterwards, applauding. And he says, Starlight Music will be mine again in no time. Why do you want it? I know, what is his obsession at this point? You have a recording studio. Why do you want this recording studio? Is it just a point of pride now? Is there something super special about Starlight Music? Like there's pirate gold buried in the basement that only you know about? What's the big deal? Meanwhile, back at Starlight Mansion, somebody has left a ransom note on the door. And it's all its all like newspaper cutout. It's a poem. And uh, there's a slight discrepancy here. They read the first line a little differently. For really good times, the very best yet, check out the storehouse and talk to Chibet. And they read this as really good tunes, which is actually, you know, kind of part of their plot point because they're like, tunes! Left hand was not talking to the right hand again. It was not. 
It never is. They talk through it. And they're like, tunes, they must be talking about the tape. And then the storehouse could be this club that I've heard about. And then Jerrica pipes in with, and whoever Chubet is, she must be at the storehouse. Thanks, Jerrica. That was not necessary. We connected the dots on that ourselves. Look, Jerrica now just wants to be part of the conversation. God forbid something happened without her. So they're driving through this really sketchy neighborhood. And Kimber is startled by a hippie. She's like, what's that? And it cuts to like some hippie who then darts into an alley like he's a raccoon. And this is unsettling, I guess. We, we do a quick intercut to the misfits playing billiards and just kind of cackling. Laughing about imagining Jerrica running all over town, following these clues. We cut back. They've arrived at the club. Which is a decrepit room on the top floor of a condemned building with strobe lights and unfriendly punks and nothing else. There's, there's a band playing in the background, but it's not even like there's not a set or anything. There's not a stage. They're just sort of set up in a corner. I mean, we get this whole little scene of, of the holograms asking the punks questions, and it's all like, it's basically just a bunch of squares don't understand the modern music. At one point, Kimber goes up to a guy, and he's like, sorry, you're not my type. And she's like, excuse me, I'm not your type? She's actually mad about this. Well, I mean, this is Kimber. She's used to every single boy that she meets wanting to be her boyfriend. It turns out that Chabet is the soda machine. There's a soda machine in the club. And they named it Chabet. They don't have a bar, they just have a soda machine. Do they do they fill it with, like, cans of beer or something? Or are these clean punks? Who comes by to refill the soda machine? Who comes to this abandoned building, unlocks the soda machine with a little key, and loads it up with the cans again? There's a guy you need to call for that. Maybe they regularly attack and rob a soda guy. Like one of the guys in the Coke trucks. They ride him down on their motorcycles. Well, I guess this lends more credence to the whole uh, post-apocalyptic future thing. If they're conducting highway robbery to get soda. High-speed highway robbery. It's going to be a side episode. Aja is so frustrated by the fact that this is a soda machine that she kicks it. And a soda with a note attached pops out. So had nobody gotten soda that night? Or did the misfits just perfectly time it for when the other glam rockers showed up? How do they know they would kick it? So our new note reads, If it's not in the storehouse, it's at the garage. That dent in your fender is not a mirage. And you know, at this point, I actually have to appreciate Pizzazz's meter. This is like an ABCB rhyme scheme, but her meter is actually pretty tight. Honestly, you know what? For being cut out of a magazine, ABCB, that's fine. On their way out of the club, two of the unfriendly punks are like, hey, I bet they've got money, so they decide they're gonna mug the holograms. Again, I just kind of love this world where nobody wants to sexually assault women. They just want to steal money from them. Like, there were the ones in Vegas that were like, hey, baby, where are you going? I'm trying to get to this casino. Oh, it's right down there a couple blocks that way. I want to live in this world where sketchy hecklers just want to give you directions. Anyway, my next note on this is, oh no, the rockin' roadster. Yeah, the holograms come down and there is, as prophesized, a dent in their fender, which the misfits are still, like, away. How did this happen? I bet Zipper's in the background in his ninja costume and he did it. Aja looks at the thing and says, well, we can't do anything about it right now, but she says it in Jerrica's voice. Yeah, and then we cut to a shot off screen where, like, Jerrica continues talking, like, let's go home for now. While Aja's mouth is not moving. There's a lot of this in this episode, just people talking with each other's voices. But anyway, Mad Max motorcycle robbery. So our motorcyclists uh, start following after the rock and roadster, and Aja's like, I think we got a tail, and they start 
driving and taking random turns and they end up in a dead end the thugs get off their motorcycles and are like it's okay there's only two of them and then a whole other gang shows up you got the money yeah the thugs are gonna like use the holograms and the car to pay off some kind of debt out of nowhere and shane is like i don't think even synergy can get us out of this one and you know what in my notes i wrote really what about lions there's no improbable situation that Synergy can't get you out of. You should know this by now, Shayna. But as they're about to be, like, sold into gang slavery or something, that's where we cut to our commercial break. The great thing about this is that a bunch of the punks are just slamming bricks together like they're in Monty Python. Like, that's, that's their threatening weapon is they're just banging bricks together. And after the commercial break comes back, one of them says, give us the cash or we'll give you one of these, and then smacks the bricks together again. The world is fire and blood bricks and you know what shana you know what shana you're full of snot because jim says fireworks synergy and synergy sets the car on fire which is a firework synergy just heard fire and was immediately started before hearing works she's like oh fire i know how to do that i still think synergy's twisted imagination is maybe the best part of this show a car being set on fire instantly scares away every single gang member Including the two thugs on motorcycles. I don't even think they get back on their motorcycles. I think they just leave. Well, to be fair, a car fire is not a thing you want to hang around for very long. Uh, especially not when there's four glam rockers just sitting calmly in the vehicle as they as they burn. Shayna immediately asks for Synergy's forgiveness as the holograms head home. I don't think we actually hear Synergy forgive her. No, Jericho's just like, you know, she'll probably, I'm sure it's fine. Don't speak for Synergy. Meanwhile, Synergy's like, nope, the grudge has been formed. It will be with me for the rest of your natural life. And then a thousand years beyond your little puny human lifespan. I can't forget anything. So we, uh, we have a quick cut of the Misfits playing their new song, uh, which is There Ain't Nobody Better. They're in love with it. Pizzazz makes a quick switcheroo. She grabs a blank tape and she puts it in the Gem and the Holograms master box. And it's like, haha, when the holograms finally find their tape, it'll be a blank. So this whole scavenger hunt has been completely pointless. But it's still gonna keep happening. <laughs> we have two more spots to go. Meanwhile, we have the hol the holograms back at Starlight Records leafing through like eight different copies of the yellow pages, which is spectacular because you kind of forget that in the pre-internet days, you couldn't just Google anything. You had to leap through the yellow pages. This is going, this scene is going to be completely inscrutable to anyone like born 10 years ago. Yeah, basically, if you, if you were born after the turn of the century, you're going to be like, what the hell are they doing? Anyway, the holograms eventually locate the Mirage Garage, which is at, and I quote here directly from the Yellow Pages, 470 Way Out There Boulevard, California. No city, just California. And I love that it's a boulevard, not like a state road or anything. And when they drive out there, for some reason, guys who live at the edge of LA sound like hayseeds. Guy greets him with the solid howdy, and Aja is like, did he actually say howdy? Aja, I beg your pardon? This man is allowed to greet you f properly with a howdy if you're going to make stupid jokes about shoes, okay? You are no better. Also, you and the holograms are basically about to ruin his livelihood, so give the man a break here. The best thing about this is his name is Bubba. The terrifying thing is that people who live in LA actually think that this is what people who live anywhere outside LA sound like. Like, as soon as you're outside city limits, all of a sudden you're in the south. Oh no, it's incredible. It's incredible. So Bubba 
thinks they're purdy ladies. And he also says he has the tallest tower of tires in the state. A tower of tires? We should climb that. They're climbing all over the tallest tower of tires in the state. Like, they have no reason to think that this is where the next clue must be. But it is, because this show. And Aja causes an avalanche. This tire tower comes crashing down with someone shouting, watch out, tire avalanche. Which is possibly the best line in this episode. The tires rip a huge hole in, in the garage. They kind of crush part of his roof, honestly, like in general. Like it kind of topples down behind him. Just a wave of devastation here. Poor Bubba. They ruin his life. Yeah, they really did ruin his life because now no one's going to come see his tower of tires. And also his garage just got destroyed. What's Bubba going to do to make money? How is he going to pay for this? The holograms don't care. It's time to get back on the rock and roadster and head back. Well, Jerrica does offer to pay him or something, and Bubba's the very polite southern boy in him says, well, no, that, that'll be fine. I'll, I'll get it figured out some way or another, which is, you know, what you're supposed to do is insist on paying anyway. But no, Jerrica's like, no, okay, okay, bye. Yeah, they leave him forever. But we do get our next note, which is, Surf and sun sound good to me. Riding blue waves is the place to be. Pizazza's meter is getting lazy, guys. I think she stopped caring. I mean, you can tell she swiftly stops caring, because we're, we're at the second to last note. Yeah, she got bored real quick. She stopped trying at this point, but the holograms are trying, because they've apparently walked the entire length of the beach in Los Angeles. Kimber's like, the beach is a lot bigger than I thought it was. Really, Kimber? Really? It takes up kind of the whole coast. You live in California. It's got more coast than anyone else. Except Alaska. Except Alaska. But you can't exactly hang out on the beach in Alaska. Well, you can, but it's not encouraged. They come across the Blue Wave Surf Shop basically after, like, they must have started at one end of the beach in Los Angeles and just worked their way down or something. They get to the Blue Wave Surf Shop and they ask the guy, hey, can we look around? Because, you know, that's not something you would normally do at a surf shop. And they basically, like, ransack the place. They're throwing surfboards all over the place. They finally find our last note, and it is the laziest frickin' note of all of them. Go 30 paces, cast your net, and don't despair. Flashy music will soon fill the air. Pizzazz! She's officially stopped trying. So they figure out, oh, there's a volleyball net right there. They dig underneath the volleyball net, and they find their tape, ostensibly. And we cut immediately to them listening to the tape at Starlight Mansion. And oh no, it's blank. And then only now does Jerrica realize that they own the world's most powerful computer and that that might help somehow. It's exactly like when they were in Venice where she's like, oh wait, holograms. Just synergy hanging out in the background going, you know, I'm ready to go whenever. I'm ready, guys. I'll just be here twiddling my hologram thumbs. Oh, now you want my help. Let me make a scanner. She has a scanner now. They feed all the notes into the scanner and Synergy instantly analyzes. Like, there's no processing time whatsoever. She instantly analyzes the notes. She doesn't even pause. Yeah, and let's be honest. Here, as we said, she's been sitting in the background this whole time just twiddling her thumbs. She's had this prepared. She knows what they're about to give her. You're totally right. She's already done all this. She's just been waiting. They just fed those notes right into a shredder. She doesn't actually need to scan them. Here's the confusing thing about this. Does Synergy have internet access? This is the weirdest part. By all accounts, she shouldn't. You silly billies. Synergy is the internet. So here's here's what Synergy tells them. 
Well, the storehouse was where the misfits performed. The Mirage Garage is near the resort owned by Daddy Gabor Box. Blue Wave Surf Shop recently had a charge by Phyllis Gabor. I don't know how she got this information, especially not the, the POS records. Synergy points out that the last note mentions flashy music, which is obviously a reference to Flash Recording Studio. Of which Daddy Gaborbucks is a part owner. We have two things that we have learned from this. One, Synergy is doing probably so many illegal things to get this information since it's 1986. And two, we're still not sure what Daddy Gaborbucks does. He just owns everything. He owns all of the things. He owns this room. He owns you. And then the holograms are like, we'll see who has the last laugh, which I feel like is a repeated line. And then we cut to this shockingly expensive and well-animated bird's eye view zoom into the holograms driving to Flash Records. Yeah, why was this shot necessary? I don't know. I mean, we could have just cut that entirely and have them pull up outside the recording studio. I feel like they could have spent that money on something else. Everybody else gets out of the car but Aja and they tell her to, like, meet us back here in five. And the remaining holograms turn into the misfits. They are able to just waltz into the recording studio. Somebody greets Jemma's pizzazz. And she's just like, nah, Adam. So you say. She, like, tries to give pizzazz, like, this Brooklyn accent. Slash Skeletor voice. Yeah. Anyway, they're, they're in the recording studio. And they're going through the tapes. Kimber and Shayna find a blank tape with no wrapping on it, which must mean that the master tape is inside. And then Jem finds the Misfits master tape and swaps out the tapes for their master. And then they make off with their own master tape. And it's like the game with the three shells and the pea underneath. You're not really sure what's going on now. Find the lady. Find the lady. So then we cut to the release party and we find out exactly what the holograms as the Misfits swap the Misfits master tape for. Eric has, he calls them record industry people. I guess these are all people who would listen to the tape and decide if they want to publish the record and maybe start a bidding war. Yeah, it's in the ballroom and he's just playing it on a stereo on a side. The acoustics are going to be terrible anyway, Eric. Yeah, they just set it up on like a table. They don't even have like a sound system in the room. And, and they all kind of gather around it in a half circle. And basically what comes out of the of the tape as soon as Eric hits it is omelette de fromage. Omelette de fromage. It's a French language learning tape. That goes over about as well as you'd expect. Pizzazz screams at Eric for ruining everything. Oh man, she has like one of the biggest freakouts that I've seen in a while. Meanwhile, the Holograms album is doing great. Everybody loves the album, including Music Biz Magazine. They're on the top 10 of Music Biz Magazine. They are at number one, and you guys... <laughs> Numbers 2 through 10 are amazing. Note that uh, numbers 5 and 6 of this are cut out on the Netflix versions, but Mac has been watching on the DVD, so she is the full list. Uh, Drumroll, please. Number 2 is Popper. Number 3, Bruce Falstein. Number 4, The Moss-Covered Stones. Number 5, Mundana. Number 6, Rodents. Number 7, Iron Fading. Number eight, Twisted Brother. Number nine, The Rumones. And finally, number ten, Tom Potty and the Headbreakers. Somebody sat down and wrote those out and thought they were hilarious. I think the Rolling Stones might be my favorite because they just lifted a Rolling Stone Gathers No Moss. 
the other ones are bad puns, but the moss-covered stones actually requires like a certain degree of cultural awareness. This is basically the kind of thing that happens in like a Mad Magazine parody, or no, let's be honest, this is what happened in Cracked Magazine in the 90s. Children, for those of you who are unaware, in the 90s, Cracked sucked. Cracked was a magazine that tried to be Mad Magazine and was really bad at it. This was before they pioneered clickbait. So that's basically the end of our episode was our album's great, everyone loves us, and then because we still have time to kill, we have another superstar segment. And we come back to everyone's favorite whiny starlight girl, Deirdre. Who is really mad because she sucks at guitar. And then Jem comes along to give her a pep talk. He's like, well, can you write your name? Yeah. Well, there's a time when you couldn't do that. So clearly you had to learn, just like you can learn to do this. It's actually pretty good advice, but then it goes into like the stock ending for these things, which is doing the right thing makes you a superstar. How does this fall under doing the right thing? This isn't a moral play at all. This is just decent advice of keep trying to get good at things. And I will say, at least with this one, in this scenario, it makes slightly more sense to, for Jem to just sort of pop up out of a garbage can. At least she lives here. And after Deirdre decides that she's going to keep getting good at guitar because that is the right thing to do, apparently, that, that basically ends up our episode. Join us next week for Hot Time in Hawaii, which contains my favorite song and my most hated song. It's the Misfits in Hawaii. <sighs> This is going to get violent, folks. You can find the Gem Jam every week on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and also YouTube, of course. We are also a Patreon-supported podcast. If you want to check out the Patreon, donate a dollar or something, that'd be super great. Helps us make this little ridiculous podcast keep on going. So until next week, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this has been the Gem Jam, where curiosity killed the cat, but outrageousness brought him back.